Good morning, Park Hill. Man, it is great to be with you again. My wife, Holly, sends her greetings. She wishes she could be here again as well because we love this community and uh, we love you guys. It's really an honor to be here. Yes, as Evan mentioned, I think many of us fear that hell is a skeleton in God's closet, right? Kind of a tough topic where I think the fear is if we were to really open up the closet doors, like open up scripture and take a closer look, I think many of us fear that we'd find that God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. And yet I've found that I think that's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. And so what I want to try and do this morning is offer a few paradigm shifts that have been really helpful for me in kind of reframing how we understand hell, reframing kind of out of some of those popular caricatures and framing it back within the biblical story and biblical narrative. And what I hope to demonstrate for you this morning is that we see the topic of hell arise in the biblical story because of the goodness of God not in spite of it or in contradiction to it, but actually because of the goodness of God. And that may sound like a strong claim, but let's jump in and I want uh, to try and make that case for you today. But let's start with the first paradigm shift for this morning. Has to do with the story of going, what is the broader storyline in the Bible that heaven and hell fit into? Now, if you were to ask most folks today, kind of word on the street, I imagine they would probably tell you a story that goes something like this. So here I am walking along on earth, right? And uh, things are going good. And one day I'm going to die. And I'm either going to go up to heaven, whoop, or down to hell, right? All right, we can kind of go on from the video there, right? And this is what I like to call kind of the earth now, heaven, hell, later later story. Uh, Oh, we can go on. Sorry, the video's going too long. Let's just go to the next slide. There we go. This is what I like to call... Uh, the earth now, heaven, hell story. And this is a problematic story, right? Earth now, heaven, hell later for a couple different reasons. Uh, One reason is that in this storyline, heaven and hell have no relationship to our experience here on earth today, right? Uh, Whereas in the biblical story, we see actually that uh, they they are related to our life on earth today, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, But another problem is that in this storyline, heaven and hell kind of become like two co-equal counterparts that are competing for our eternal destiny. So one is kind of like the positive side of the battery, the other side's like the negative side of the battery. And in this storyline, earth is nowhere in our future eternal picture with God. And so again, like one's kind of the positive side, the other's the negative side, one's yin, the other's yang. And the problem is that the Bible doesn't talk about them this way. What do I mean? Well, here's an example of what I mean. So if you were to go to Bible Gateway or an online Bible with the search feature, right? And we're going to type into the search feature here, heaven and hell. And when we hit search, it's going to show us how many times these two words appear together. And oh, don't show the answer yet. Ah, you gave it away, right? But anyways, when I like to ask people like, how many times do you think? They'll often say something like, oh, maybe a few dozen or a couple hundred times. And so it can be shocking to realize that heaven and hell don't actually appear together in the biblical story in the same verse anywhere. Which can be surprising because it's kind of going, the Bible, now heaven shows up and hell shows up, but they show up in a different way. And I'd suggest to you the Bible has a different way of talking about them and framing their relationship. That said though, heaven does have a counterpart in the biblical story. Only it's not hell. We can discover what it is by doing another version of the search feature. If we kind of clear the search bar and we type in heaven and earth, and maybe take a moment before we hit search and just think about how many times you anticipate that these show up together. 
When we hit search, we find that it's roughly 200 times, depending on which translation you're using. So roughly 200 times that heaven and earth appear together as like co-equal counterparts in the biblical story. And these are not like all in one place of scripture. So it's not like they're all kind of clustered together in Genesis or in just one part of the story. We actually see heaven and earth are like a literary thread that's woven all the way from Genesis to Revelation, tying together the biblical story as a whole. Now, it's powerful. I would suggest to you that we get hell wrong because we get heaven and earth wrong, right? That when we reclaim the broader biblical storyline, we're going to go to the next slide there. When we reclaim the broader biblical storyline of heaven and earth, earth, the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. I'm going to type in my password here so my notes come up here. And I typed it wrong. There we go. All right. Yes. So what is the biblical storyline of heaven and earth? Well, in contrast to the the problematic strikes, just in the gospel story, heaven and earth, there are three major movements. First movement, heaven and earth are A, they're created by God, B, they're torn by sin, and C, they're destined for reconciliation, right? So let's talk about each of those. Uh, First, A, heaven and earth are created good by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, the, these are the Hebrew words for like the land and the sky. So it's talking about the dust and dirt beneath our feet and the air and atmosphere we all breathe. It's talking about the physical structure, the creation of our world. And yet, it's also uh, something more, too. There's a sense that uh, when we think of land and sky, you know, we tend to just think of like the hard concrete substance of creation. Uh, But in the biblical storyline, heaven and earth are charged with the presence and the purposes of God. God has created a good world and he holds this world together. It doesn't take long though in that story for things to go south and heaven and earth are then torn by sin. We see that uh, when we rebel against God, when sin is unleashed into the world, it has a dramatic and destructive impact. And earth and heaven and earth are, are sort of severed, if you will. Their relationship is ruptured from what they were intended to be. And now we don't experience the communion with God. Heaven can become kind of a synonym for like God's space and his presence. And now there's this distance, this alienation and this destruction that is unleashed. And so in this world, Uh, heaven and earth have been torn by sin. That good relationship has been ruptured. This kind of raises the question, well, where does the story go from here? And this is where the problematic story goes. Well, hey, earth is kind of a mess, and so God's just going to kind of get us out of earth up to heaven. But what we find is actually the biblical storyline, heaven and earth are destined for reconciliation. Explain what I mean. If we go to New Testament, this is all over the pages of the New Testament. So if we go to passages like Colossians 1, where we read that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What Paul is saying here is that God's purpose in Christ is to reconcile heaven and earth. Jesus is the Savior who brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. Jesus is bringing back together what the destructive power of our sin has torn apart. 
And this is not peripheral to the gospel. This is actually central to the gospel. This, Paul's saying, hey, this is at the cross, what Jesus was doing. It may be more than this, but it's not less. What Jesus is going to the cross for is to actually reconcile and bring back together heaven and earth. See, this in other places too, like Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus is uh, telling his disciples he's now risen from the dead, and through the power of his cross and resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's interesting to me. He doesn't say, hey, all authority in heaven, so I'll see you guys when you get there, right? But no, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the risen Christ. Now, the question comes, well, why has the Father given Christ his Son this authority? Ephesians 1 would tell us it's in order to uh, bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is God's heartbeat in the gospel is to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring these things back together. We see that the hope is for that day when uh, this happens, when the earth will be flooded with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and whether in submission to Christ our Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Revelation uh, 21 and 21, we read that the end game of human history is this. John says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, a few observations here that are interesting. First is notice the direction of movement. We're not kind of going up from earth up to heaven. God is bringing heaven down to earth. And also notice the imagery of a wedding. What do weddings celebrate? They celebrate union, the two becoming one. And this wedding is no different. This wedding is celebrating the union of heaven and earth, God's reconciliation of his world with his people. So what we find here is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. And I would suggest to you that when we get the storyline in place, when we get the proper storyline of heaven and earth in place, the smaller subplot of hell starts to make a lot more sense, right? Because to long for the dawning of the light is by its very nature to long for the banishing of darkness. To hope for the healing of the body is implicitly to hope for the excising out of the disease. For us to pray with Jesus, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, here in San Diego, here on this land, as it is in heaven, is to pray that all of those forces of opposition and unrepentant rebellion would be removed and would be cast outside. So we can say from one angle, I think that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. But I suggest to you that another way of saying that exact same thing is this way, is to say that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. Right? God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. And what's kind of interesting about that phrase is that it actually works in both the problematic story and the gospel story but it means two very different things, right? So if we go to the problematic story for a moment, uh, here in the next slide. In this story, it means, hey, God is on a mission to get us the hell out of earth, right? 
There's kind of the sense of like, man, earth is a mess, it's chaos, it's uh, going to hell in a handbasket, and so beam me up, Scotty, like, God, get me out of here, get me out of Dodge, whisk me away. This is an escapist storyline that's one where God has kind of abandoned his world because he doesn't care about it that much, and it's a less compassionate God, I would suggest you, who just wants to kind of whisk us away, but to leave the earth to destruction. However, if we go to the gospel story, we find is it means Something very different. It means that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth, right? God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth, you and I, because what we see, we see the power of hell at work in our world today. We see this in massive, uh, you know, systemic levels, things like, or monumental levels, things like, um, genocide and sex trafficking and war, things that are ravaging the world on kind of big, massive levels. But we also see it on intimate, personal levels. Things like pride and lust and rage and greed, the vices of the human heart that Jesus associates with hell in Matthew 5, hell and its power. These things that have their roots in all of us, in you and I, just levels the playing field and go, this is something that affects us all. We see in uh, James, he talks about the tongue, our words, the power of our words, that your tongue, even though it's so small, it can unleash destruction in the lives of, of people around you, right? You can burn people down with your words. And the crazy thing is he goes on to say, and when it does, it is itself lit on fire by the power of hell, That what James is saying is like, man, when that coworker is gossiping in the cubicle next to you, she's not just being annoying, Like she's breathing hell into the office, right? Like we see that the power of hell has its uh, destructive impact in our world today. And yet in the gospel story, it is because of God's dramatic compassion for his rebellious world that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth so much so that Jesus went to the cross and bore its destructive flame in order to extinguish it and put it out in all who would receive him. And the question that Jesus has for us is not, hey, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? Rather, his question is, will you let me heal you? Because we we all need that healing. We all need the, the, the flames, so to speak, snuffed out at the level of our affections and our desires of our heart to be renewed. Okay, but big picture here. Uh, the biblical story then, to summarize, goes like this. God creates a good heaven and good earth, but then our sin, our rebellion, it unleashes destruction, at least there's the destructive power of hell into the world. But because God is good, he is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring back together what our sin and death and hell have torn apart. Uh, sorry, shameless plug. That I, 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 I meant to fast forward through if I could before that got there, but big picture. Okay, so <laughs> that's the biblical storyline. So the first paradigm shift is going, man, it's, the story is not earth now, heaven, hell later. It's God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth from the power of hell. This raises the question, though, when God does this, where does the power of hell go? Where does hell go? And this brings us to our second paradigm shift for today. This has to do with the location of hell. And I found that when you ask people and describe where you think hell is, you know, many describe something like the underground torture chamber, Right? There's kind of this caricature, this image that hell is, 
actually, first off, what I want to try and do in the next, uh, you know, rest this morning is to show you that in the biblical story that A, how's location is not underground, B, its purpose is not torture, and C, its construction is not a chamber. But let's start with its location, right? Like many people think it's uh, underground. So when I was a kid, I was a, you know, I loved Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and I don't know if you any remember like Bill and Ted's bogus journey where, you know, they go down to hell in the sequel and, and, uh, and the scene, they're like, they're falling for like a minute. Ah, ah, you know, and, and it just keeps going for like over 30 seconds or something. You're like, whoa, it's just showing you, hey, it's really, really, really far down there, right? That's like this popular conception. But the reality is in the New Testament, I would suggest to you that how's uh, location, it's not underground, but rather outside the city, right? Outside the city. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus's primary word for hell is Gehenna. And this was a Greek term for the Valley of Hinnom. And so uh, the Greek word ge means valley, and henna is a transliteration of Hinnom. And so Gehenna uh, was the name for the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is an actual physical place located just outside Jerusalem's walls. Like you can Google Maps it today. You could type in Valley of Hinnom. You could find this spot right now. Um, and so the location, when Jesus is talking about this, for those who are listening to him, this wasn't like someplace deep down in the bowels of the earth. It wasn't a vortex in a galaxy far, far away. This was someplace you could hike to. You could go out for a walk to. It's like, hey, it's right outside the city, over there, right? Uh, now, on the one hand, I'd suggest uh, that's, it's a good thing that we use the English word hell for this, right? Um, because we don't have to walk around, I don't know, there's overlap with our language, so we don't have to go around speaking foreign language all the time, right? Like, um, drivers cut off in traffic, don't have to be like, what the Gehenna, you know? And when your uh, favorite sports team wins, here the Chargers in San Diego, or whatever the team, you're like, Gehenna, yeah, yes, you know, excited. So it's good, there's overlap with our language, but there's a danger here too. And the danger is that we can have some cultural associations with the word hell that Jesus doesn't necessarily have in mind. And Jesus may have some things he's trying to communicate with the word Gehenna that we can miss. And so not only where was Gehenna, but what was Gehenna? Why is Jesus using this term? Well, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, it had a dark and destructive history in the Old Testament. Particularly, it was a place that was primarily associated with child sacrifice. This was a place where the people of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, they would walk outside the city. So if we go to the next slide here, so it was outside Jerusalem's walls. So the people would walk outside the city. Uh, we'll go to the next slide. And they would take their children and they would light the flames in Gehenna, the next slide, and they would murder their children. Final slide. So this place was railed on by the prophets as going, man, as, as like a symbol of how far gone God's people had become. And its two primary associations here are with idolatry and injustice, right? The Valley of Hinnom was like a symbol of the idolatry and injustice in God's people and in the world. So uh, let's talk about this for a minute. Idolatry, I like to think of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom is like the cheap hotel on the outskirts of town where Israel would go to cheat on God, right? If Israel was the bride of Yahweh, was the uh, covenant people of God, then, uh, then 
basically going out to Gehenna to worship these other idols, the other gods, was like cheating on God, betraying him, cheating on him with other lovers. And so it was a place that was associated in that sense with adultery on God, right, by his people. Not only was it idolatry, though, Gehenna was also a place of injustice, that this was a place where Israel murdered their children. And if they're married to God, that means that they were his kids, too, right? And so the prophets railed on this that, uh, man, what are you doing? God says in places like Jeremiah, never have I commanded, never would I have considered such a thing. What are you doing? Now, idolatry and injustice in the biblical story, we may see those as disconnected, but actually they're, they're held together in the biblical story. They're intertwined. And the idea is when you worship idols, when you take something other than God and you make it more ultimate than God, whether that is sex or money or power, whatever that thing is, when you take one of God's good gifts and you make it more ultimate than God, it unleashes destruction in the world. Idolatry leads to injustice. And we see this with the Valley of Hinnom. So uh, Jeremiah 19, he puts it this way. He says, uh, God is crying out against the Valley of Hinnom. He says, for they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. That's idolatry. They're worshiping other lovers. And he goes on in the very next breath to say, they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. That's injustice. The Valley of Hinnom is a symbol for the idolatry and injustice that mark a world in rebellion against God. So, What we can learn from this about the nature of hell, I I think a few things here. One would be that, um, yes, hell is cruel, but its cruelty arises not from the nature of God, but from the idols that there hold sway, right? Like blaming the cruelty of hell on God is like an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the pain of their affliction, right? Sobriety is the cure the alcoholic needs, not the thing that's inflicting the pain of their condition, right? Um, it, in one sense. And similarly, God is the cure that Gehenna needs. God is the cure that the idolatry and injustice the world need. Now, there is a sense that God is active in relation to hell. He's not just passive kind of sitting by. Like, it is a sign of God's active judgment that the hope of the prophets was that one day God was going to return as king to Jerusalem and he was going to reestablish his kingdom and he was going to kick the destructive rebellion outside the city outside Jerusalem, back into Gehenna, where it came from. And so God is active. He's actively redeeming his world. He's actively uh, containing the destructive power of sin to protect his redemptive restoration and all. But God and his goodness are the cure that the idolatry and injustice that Mark Gehenna need, right? Another observation here on the nature of hell. One is, um, yes, there's imagery of flames here, but it's at least interesting to reflect on how the flames of Gehenna were lit by human hands. Uh, Fire imagery shows up in a lot of different ways in Scripture. It can show up for the refining power and presence of God. It can show up for um, God's judgment on wicked empires and evil. And it can also show up for the wickedness of the human heart that burns like a flame. A lot of the prophets use language of our evil like a fire. James uses similar, like the wickedness of our uh, sin can be like a fire because fire doesn't build up. It tears down, it consumes, and it destroys. And so 
it's interesting to consider how uh, there, there is this imagery in the Gehenna backdrop that speaks to the destructive power of our sin, like a wildfire that burns down God's good purposes for his world. All right. <clears throat> Big picture, though, in terms of location, if we go back to the underground torture chamber, we see that the location is not underground. It's actually outside the city. And what's interesting to me is I think this actually lines up with uh, a lot of our deepest held hopes and dreams that we see embodied in the fairy tale, which leads to what I like to call the, the fairy tale is real, right? Uh, I think this storyline shows us in the Bible that, man, it's, it's affirming that, like, man, some of our deepest hopes expressed in the very structure of our fairy tales are very similar. So uh, to give you an example, this last week I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia to my eight and nine-year-old boys, right? And we were in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I don't know how many read Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? but in this storyline, uh, there's this, you know, prince and he's on this ship and he comes to this island and this island has, there's been a rebellion on this island for a long time. There's this governor, Goompas, who's kind of like a mafia warlord who's just run the place, you know, bad. It's, it's, it's a time where those who, uh, like, exploitation and slavery and all these things are running rampant. And you've got kind of two sets of people depicted. There are those who are uh, kind of just making do, like trying to get ahead and do what they can to live their, you know, get their best stuff they, they can in this condition. Um, but then there are those who are holding out hope for the return of the king. And that when the king returns, he will reestablish goodness and rightness and justice in the land. And eventually now the, the king, the prince, he shows up and uh, he and his crew, like once word spreads, like the king is here. For the most part, those who have aligned their lives with the old rebellious order of things, like they flee, they get out of Dodge, They're like the jig is up. But there are some who try and stay. And so there's a scene uh, in the castle where the king or the prince, he's having this conversation with the corrupt governor and the corrupt governor essentially says, well, hey, why don't we work out a compromise, king? Why don't you just allow us to kind of run our racket on the side and we'll cut you in on the profits kind of deal, you know? And, and, uh, and, and you can still be the good guy out with the public face you know, to the, to the kingdom, but, you know, let us do our thing and we'll, we'll help you out, right? And everything in my eight, nine-year-old kids is going, no! You're like, don't compromise with the bad powers. Don't let a tinge or a hint of that evil remain. And thankfully, he doesn't. The very next line is, the prince says, the only remaining question is not whether I'm going to work out a compromise or a deal with you guys, but rather is whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging or with one. He goes on to say, you may choose which you prefer. <laughs> I love that. You either get out or I'm going to boot you out. But you have, what he's saying here in this fairy tale is like, you have aligned yourself against the goodness and rightness and justice of my kingdom. You have stubbornly resisted and rejected the true way that leads to life. And therefore, the only question is whether you're going to walk out or I'm going to boot you out, but I'm not going to compromise with that. And this is good news for my kids. This is good news in the fairy tale that uh, it's going to get kicked outside the city, outside the kingdom. We see this in 
that's I, I, just all, you know, we want at the end of Star Wars for the Death Star to be destroyed and the stormtroopers to go slinking off outside the center of the story. We want in Cinderella for the wicked stepsisters who've been working against the wedding of the prince and his bride the whole time, now for them to go slinking off where they've been at the center of the story with power and influence and all that, and now they go slinking off to the outskirts of the story. Go on and on, but this is essentially like the type of story that we see where goodness, it's, it's not so much a story of up and down, like good folks go up, bad folks go down in the Bible, as it is rather of center and periphery, right? That God is reestablishing his goodness, his kingdom, reconciling heaven and earth at the center of the world, and evil and rebellion and destruction and all those who have unrepentantly aligned their lives against God's goodness and his righteousness and his justice and his glory and his kingdom go slinking to the outskirts of the city, right? Outside the city, outside the kingdom. God actively judges the rebellion and puts it outside the goodness of his kingdom. And again, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not going, the question is not, hey, were you good enough to get in? The question is, will you let me heal you, right? And the, it's a story driven by grace. And the challenge is not that God is not good or gracious towards us as unrepentant rebels. The challenge is our hardened heart that we would say no and resist and cling to life on our own terms rather than giving our life to the king and his kingdom. Okay, well, so that speaks to the um, that speaks to the location of hell. Let's move now to the purpose. Like, what is the purpose? Uh, is the purpose torture? If we go to the next slide, uh, and no, I believe what we actually see in the story of the Bible is that the purpose is protection. God's purpose is protection, meaning that God is out to protect the goodness of his kingdom from the destructive power of sin. God protects his kingdom by containing unrepentant rebellion outside of his kingdom so that it can no longer hurt and destroy. Now, this makes sense too, uh, right? Like if you think about, um, I, it makes me think about this theme that I like to think of as liberating the capital. They're liberating the capital. And what I mean by that is that uh, this shows up, this, this kind of biblical structure shows up not just in like the fairy tales. You kind of go, well, that's kind of airy-fairy and yeah, whatever. But what about the real like blood and dirt of history? And we see this similar theme in how throughout history people, we tend to tell our war stories, right? And so within this history, there's this hope for the capital, the city at the center of power and influence to be liberated from evil and liberated from forces that oppress and destroy and for evil to be kicked outside. So uh, as an example of this, I've spent a lot of time over the years working in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. Uh, Phnom Penh is the capital of Cambodia. And Cambodia was home to one of the worst genocides of the 20th century, sadly. Uh, where roughly a third of the population, um, some estimates, a, a quarter to a third of the population was killed in this genocide. And so just a horrific, uh, tragic part of uh, the, the history in Cambodia. 
And I've talked with so many people who lived that era, who were, you know, enduring and surviving, and some who would say, man, and they would say things like, man, we were just hoping, would someone come in and kick the Khmer Rouge? They were the ones causing the genocide. Would someone come and kick the Khmer Rouge out of the capital? like out of power, out of control? Would they liberate the capital in order to liberate the country? And eventually that happened. Uh, Vietnam actually came in and they liberated the, the capital. They kicked the Khmer Rouge out of power. And when that happened, everyone in the country was like, man, this was good news. Even if you weren't in the capital, even if you weren't in Phnom Penh, you could be way out in the countryside. But when you heard that the capital had been liberated, it was good news because it meant that the rest of the country was coming too. And so, uh, so Phnom Penh was liberated. And the next question became, well, what does the new government do with the Khmer Rouge who've been responsible for the genocide? And, and they had, the Khmer Rouge said, hey, essentially, hey, we've been defeated, we've lost our weapons, we've lost our power. Rather than killing us, annihilating us, would you instead let us kind of hole ourselves up in the rural north of the country? And uh, it's kind of an impoverished, like, uh, tough land to survive on. But they're like, would you let us kind of go into exile, live out our days in peace up there? And they did as an act of mercy. They said, okay, rather than uh, executing the Khmer Rouge, they let them go up to the north and kind of hole up in that area that a lot of it had been devastated because of their actions, right? It was a place of devastation. And I feel like there's like a metaphor there in some ways of going like, man, it was actually more merciful rather than to annihilate them, to give them a place that was marked by their destruction, the destruction they had wreaked havoc on, and to hand them over to that, that place. But the new government was going, we want to protect the country as a whole from the destruction that your ideology and your rebellion has unleashed, right? And so the purpose of containment was protection, to protect the peace and the flourishing and the goodness of the kingdom. And I think we see this similarly in the biblical story that uh, when we talk about the city of Jerusalem, this image of sin being cast outside the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem means literally Yerushalom, the city of peace, the peace, the flourishing of God. And it's seen in the Bible as not only the capital of Israel, but in some ways like the capital of the earth, right? Like the center of God's kingdom for the world. And what happens in uh, Revelation at the end is now we see like the new Jerusalem. It's no longer this little podunk city. It's depicted as like the size of a massive continent. Scholars would say like, probably the size of the known world at the time. And so the picture here is like, man, God is bringing down, uh, if we can go to the video, God is bringing down the new Jerusalem like this continent that's renewing and restoring his world. We can go on in the next slide. And, uh, what we see here, I believe, is that God's purpose is protection. And this shows up in a number of different verses throughout the, the, the Bible. So one that I love is Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 9, where uh, Isaiah is depicting the hope for the state. God is going to come and he's going to bring his kingdom. And when God brings his kingdom, Isaiah says, um, or this is God speaking through Isaiah, God says, hey, when I bring my kingdom, on that day they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The holy mountain is Mount Zion, Jerusalem. So God's going, when I set up my kingdom again from Jerusalem, these forces that currently hurt and destroy and tear things apart, the jig is up. Their day is going to be done. And why will the jig be up? Why will the day be done? Well, he goes on to say, um, 
For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Did you catch that? Like the hope for Jerusalem, the holy mountain, is hope for the entirety of the world as his presence covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And when God establishes his kingdom, he's saying he will protect it from those forces that harm and destroy today. God protects his kingdom by containing the power of evil. I also love Zechariah 2, verses 4 to 5, where Zechariah uh, is this picture again of God establishing his kingdom. And um, he says, on that day, uh, he says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. Now, I love that picture, a city without walls. God's going, hey, I'm going to tear down the walls of my home. I'm going to tear down the walls of the city so that as many people and even the animals, whoever any animals, like livestock, cattle, whatever, anyone wants to bring the, the people, animals, anyone who wants to come and be a part of my city, of my kingdom will be able to come. But if you were an ancient Israelite now, <laughs> There was a problem with that, right? You'd be going, well, hey, God, like the walls are what protect us, right? The walls are what keep the invaders out, the people who want to tear apart our lives. So, God, it's nice that you want to, like, blow down the walls and all and let everybody in. But if you do that, then how are we going to be protected from hostile invasion? And God goes on to address this in the very next verse. He says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. I will be its glory within God protects his kingdom, not with tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. He protects it with his very presence, which is here depicted as a protective fire. But the presence of God, his Holy Spirit, his holy presence is a protective fire that will not allow those forces that want to invade and harm and destroy inside. God's posture is one of welcome and embrace, but God is a defender who defends and protects his people. There is a day coming when the evil that tears apart our world will no longer be able to wreak its havoc on you, right? Man, we were praying this morning before the service, and uh, as we were praying, some themes that came up, and even a, a, a phrase that was stirring in me is I felt like God had a word for us this morning that evil does not have the last word on your story, right? Evil does not have the last word on the story of our world. And I imagine there may be some of you this morning who are here and you have been feeling discouraged and disillusioned by like a lack of hope because you look around at the world around you and we see every week there's one more mass shooting. We see, man, there's, one, there's more of the political animosity and division and hate that's increasingly tearing our culture apart. You see more of the uh, around the world genocide and sex trafficking and things that can seem so overwhelming and you're enduring the own impact and ramifications of abuse or things that you have endured, mistreatment from the hands of others, and you can find yourself in this place of going, God, is there any hope? Is this the best we have? Because it looks like evil has the last word. And what the gospel steps in and says is, no, evil does not have the last word on our, the story of our world, and it does not have the last word in your story as well. God sees the evil and the injustice right now. And God is patient. He's way more patient with our world than sometimes I want him to be, right? But the good news of the gospel is not only that he's patient with us, but also that his patience will not last forever. 
There is a day coming when God will establish his kingdom and it will be an eternal kingdom and no longer will sin and death and injustice be able to run rampant and destroy. In Revelation, as you're in uh, the book of Revelation right now, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 3 or 4, um, what my notes here, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 3, but it talks about, as, um, as Evan mentioned, uh, this phrase like the smoke yeah, Revelation 19.3, the smoke from her rises up forever. And it's kind of in relation to this image of the lake of fire, that the smoke from her rises up forever. Well, what's the her? It's Babylon, right? And what's just happened in the story, God has just judged Babylon with fire. Now, Babylon is like an image for like the, the empires of our world that seek to rule and reign on the earth without God. That they're characterized by idolatry and injustice, wreaking havoc on God's good world. And there's this picture of, uh, we, we may talk about this on the podcast this week. I think Evan and I are going to do some Q&A and go a little deeper on your guys' podcast this week. But um, this image of the lake of fire, it's drawing on all sorts of Old Testament imagery for God's judgment on rebellious empires and cities. And so on the podcast, we might go into a little more, like some of these Old Testament backdrops, but one of them I find fascinating is Genesis 19, uh, Genesis 19, where God has just judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, right? And Abraham goes out and he looks upon the rubble and it says he saw the smoke going up from her, like smoke from a furnace, right? Now the image, the image of the, this rubble of fire, it's like the picture of the rubble of a rebellious empire against God. It's not the underground torture chamber, it's the aftermath of destruction. And the good news that I think Revelation is pointing us to is going, the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah went up for a while, but they could have rebuilt it again later down the road, right? But the smoke of Babylon is going to rise up forever, meaning Babylon has gone down and she ain't getting back up. What it's saying is that God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his victory over the rebellious empires of the world will not have any further, will not, have, will not be able to continue the havoc that they've wreaked in our world today. This is a picture of hope that God's justice will be reestablished in the world, that God's goodness will have the last word. And that means that you and I can have hope because the goodness of God and his kingdom will win the day. Okay, well, we've talked about the story. We've talked about the location. We've talked about the purpose. And now, finally, let's move to the construction of hell. The question is, is it a chamber? And the answer is, nope. <laughs> and what I mean by this is, right, okay, I think the caricature here that sometimes people can have is there's this picture that I think many people have where um, God looks kind of like a vindictive tyrant, right? And so uh, the chamber picture is one where um, people are going, God, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'll do anything to change. I just, man, and, and God's kind of like, oh, no, too bad. I just, or I don't want to be with you. And, you know, he's backing away. And the, the, the picture here is we want out and we're pursuing God and God is stubbornly backing away. Now, the problem is what we actually see in the gospel, there is a finality to God's judgment and his calling out evil, but the issue has to do with the fact that uh, what the scripture talks frequently about is the hardened heart, 
of going, if you continually reject God and resist God and choose your own way in your own life, there's this picture that it's like we become hardened against God, hardened in our own sin and our opposition. And as some have said from one angle, it's like the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And the sense of going, it's our affections and desires being corrupted against God and not wanting him are the root of the issue. Now, again, God is active. He is calling out our sin, and he is containing evil. And so uh, God is active in judgment, but the root issue is us hardening ourselves against God and refusing and rejecting his gracious mercy in the gospel. It's not arising because of some vindictiveness or some um, cruelty or something in the heart of God. The opposite. And one way I like to think about this is... um, If we think about the gospel as a wedding proposal, which is really, as Evan alluded to earlier with baptism, that's that's like a central biblical image of the gospel's wedding proposal where Christ is the groom at the cross. He lays down his life for his bride. And the cross is essentially an invitation to say, hey, come, be united with me. All the bad stuff you have to bring, your, your, your sin, your shame, your weakness, your poverty, all that. Like Christ, I'm taking it all upon myself and all that I have to give and to bring for you, my, my, my glory, the riches of heaven, the life with God, righteousness, all that, like I give to you. Like salvation is found in union with Christ. And the gospel is essentially Jesus inviting us into union with him. Again, going, will you let me heal you? Come and be united in life with me forever, and nothing will be able to tear us apart, not even hell, right? Jesus went to hell and back to rescue his bride and to be with us forever. Now, the question is, how can you respond to the marriage proposal? And as far as I can tell, there's only four responses, and it's kind of an analogy for how we can respond to the gospel. How, if we say no, if we go, God, I would rather live life on my own rather than life with, with you, well, what kind of options does God have for how he responds? As far as I can tell, there's only four options, and the most merciful one is lines with like the biblical vision of hell and how this works, right? So the first option to the rejected marriage proposal is for God to say, hey, well, marry me and bring in your old lovers, right? And this is the option for God to essentially go, uh, why can't God just ignore unrepentant sin? Why can't God just pretend it didn't happen uh, or it's not there? And that would not be loving. For God to ignore it means that we're bringing the rebellion into his kingdom and it's going to unleash the havoc and the destruction all over again. This would be a bad marriage proposal Marry me and bring in your old lovers. God is jealous for you, and he wants all of you, and he won't withstand the competitors, right? Okay, so that's a bad marriage proposal, or bad response. Second bad response, I'd say is, hey, God to say, hey, marry me or I'll kill you, right? Uh, and this is a metaphor for what some have called annihilationism or the idea of God kind of going, hey, marry me. And if you don't, maybe it'd be more merciful for God to just snuff them. But kind of like the Cambodia story I shared, like I actually find it less merciful for God to annihilate the unrepentant sinner. Uh, It's fascinating. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, is a really fascinating depiction of, of, man, why would anyone reject God? But what is like the darkness and devastation and destruction of a life look like that prefers life without God rather than life with God? 
And I believe that there's, uh, since in the, the kind of historic Christian doctrine of hell, of going, like, it's actually more merciful for God to create a space and hand over to and contain from and actively judge by giving to that rather than to simply annihilate and stuff someone out. That would, in my mind, be less merciful, actually. Third option is for God to say, hey, oh, by the way, too, that's a bad way to propose, right? <laughs> like, don't say, or I'm going to kill you, or we'll call the police. I don't know. Come talk to Evan and I, and we'll try and set you straight. Third option, marry me, or I'll lock you in the basement, right? And this would be the idea, well, kind of universalism. Why can't God just sort of use hell to purge people of their sin and ultimately bring them into the kingdom? The problem here is this isn't how love actually works, right? Like coercion, force, punishment, that doesn't incite love, right? And it's not the way the gospel works. Again, it doesn't deal with the reality of the hardened heart, which sets itself against God. And so then the final option is for God to say, hey, marry me or go your own way. And I believe this is actually more of the picture that we see. The biblical depiction is that Christ is inviting us. He invites you into union with himself. But there's a reality that if you prefer life apart from God rather than with God, God's greatest judgment may be giving you what you want handing you over to that. That doesn't mean God's not good. It means we're not good. It means we prefer things that are evil to the goodness of God. And yet, kind of like I opened with, like God's goodness is magnified through the story. It's because of God's goodness that he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. It's because of God's goodness that he will cast the rebellion outside of the city, outside his kingdom. It's because of God's goodness that he will protect his kingdom from the destructive power of evil by containing sin. And it's because of God's goodness that he has gone to the cross for you and offers life in union with himself, but he also says, hey, marry me, be united with me, or go your own way. And God is active in judgment. He does, I, I, I remember, you know, some people say, hey, are, are you softening or lightening? Now, you know, and, and I'm like, no, I actually think it's, there's more gravity. I remember uh, hearing Tim Keller once was asked, effectively, like, do you think the flames of hell, are they real or metaphorical? And he's like, you know, I think they're metaphorical. And that person goes, um, oh, whew, you know, some of that effect. And he followed up by saying, I think they're a metaphor for something much worse. <laughs> you know, and the person kind of, whoa, straightened up. And I think that's a picture here of going, actually, what we're talking about, life apart from your creator, the one you were made for, it's a devastating picture. It should bring a sobriety to us of facing like, like that, that reality. This is the God you were made for. It raises the question, what does it mean to be united with God, to say yes to the marriage proposal? And I want to land with this, is I believe that receiving Jesus, saying yes to his proposal, it is the easiest thing in the world, and it is the hardest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing in the world because it's free. It costs you nothing. He's paid the price. He's gone to the cross to be with you forever. And so he wants to be with you. The question is, do you want to be with him? Will you say yes? He has demonstrated the extravagance of his love for you by going to hell and back to redeem you and be with you forever. So it's the easiest thing in the world. But I'd also say it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs you everything, right? In another sense, 
costs you nothing in one sense, but not it costs you everything. Because if you think about like marriage, it's like, man, letting go of a life lived on your own and entering into union with another, it means, man, I am merging my life with you. And we're not talking about getting married to Joe Schmo here, right? Like we're talking about being united to the creator of the universe who is holy, who is sovereign, who is massive, all these things, yet desires to dwell in intimacy and communion with us. And so to say yes to the marriage proposal, it's the hardest thing in the world because it means letting go of a life lived on your own to enter into communion with the beauty and the transcendence and the mystery of the triune God. To be filled with the Spirit, united with Christ and brought into the home and the kingdom of the Father forever. And so as we come to communion this morning, and we're going to worship here in a moment, we're going to sing song, we're going to praise our God. As we come to that, I want to invite you this morning when you come to the table to see this as Evan talked about it earlier, like this is almost like a renewal of the vows. It's coming to a place of union with Christ going, Jesus, I want you more than the idols of our world, more than the injustice of our world, more than the things in my own heart that I maybe have given myself to you. Jesus, I want to renew my commitment to you, my focus on you. My hope is found in union with you. And I hope for all of us this morning, we can reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, not in spite of some of these tough topics, but even because of them, because we see and encounter the goodness of God and the fullness of his story for the world and in the fullness of his heart for you. Would you join me in prayer? God, you are so good. We thank you, God, that you are on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. God, that you have not abandoned our world to destruction. You are being patient, but your patience will not last forever. And you are coming to redeem. And Jesus, you are out to restore and bring back together what sin and death and hell have sought to tear apart. Jesus, we thank you that you will not let evil have the last word, but that you will kick it outside your city, outside your kingdom, that the peace of God, the shalom of God, the flourishing of God could be reestablished in our world once more. And we pray even now that that shalom, your peace, God, would be established in our lives here at Park Hill Church Community on earth as in heaven. God, God we pray a prayer of thanks, God, that you will protect your city, that you are our defender, that you are a God who loves us and is out ultimately to defend us and to protect us from all those forces that seek to harm and destroy. God, I pray for hope this morning for any who have just felt uh, disillusioned and, uh, man, in dismay at the state of the world, that we would find renewed hope this morning in your goodness and your coming victory. And God, I thank you that this is not just a big picture story out there, but it's intimate as an invitation to each of us in this room, that your desire is for union with us, God. God, I pray if there are any in this room who have been clinging to that desire for autonomy, for a life lived on their own, God, that this morning they would hear that invitation, Holy Spirit, you inviting us to trade our autonomy for communion, to trade life lived for ourselves for life lived unto you, God, that our worship this morning would be a sign that we find you, our creator, our maker, our greatest treasure, that do we delight in your love for us and to respond, Lord, with loving affection and worship to glorify 
you are mighty king forever. Make us a people, God. Make Park Hill a people and a place where your kingdom has come on earth as in heaven. God, here in San Diego as in heaven, as an anticipation of your victory that's coming for the world. We pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.